Welcome to Snakes and Funerals. I'm your host, Evan Morgan, and I have, as always, with me, my co-host, Eli Berger. Eli, how's it going? Hello. Good. Uh, so, I'm very excited about our topic for today's episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about three films by the Japanese filmmaker Nobuhiku Obayashi uh, that Obayashi made in the 1980s. And uh, Obayashi is, of course, most famous in this country, anyways, for House, uh, which we are not going to talk about on this show, uh, but which uh, is a film that I do admire uh, in many respects. And, and sort of, yeah, and it, it's sort of strangely seen in isolation without any context uh, for Obayashi as an artist more generally and his career writ large. And I think as Eva and I sort of explored these Obayashi films over the last couple of months, we were both really just blown away by the the richness and the mastery and the depth of these movies. So, uh, at least for me, <clears throat> I'm, I'm kind of hoping that uh, we can use this podcast as a way to rescue Obayashi a little bit from the Midnight Madness jail uh, that House has sort of trapped him in and shed some light on the other distinctive uh, parts of his personality that, uh, and his artistic work that <clears throat> were uh, really moving for uh, both Eli and I to explore. Uh, so I guess I should mention the films that we're actually talking about. So we're going to be talking about uh, his film The Discarnates, uh, Bound for the Fields, the Mountains, and the Seacoast, and his motorcycle, Her Island. Uh, so... Eli, is there anything you wanted to say by way of introduction? Yeah, um, just that um, with House, also one of the uh, great benefits of further exploring Obayashi's filmography is seeing uh, the uh, deeper elements to that movie and how it actually really does relate to him, to, to his whole body of work. Um and I'm not going to really talk about House for much longer, but based on what we're going to talk about today, perhaps if you see those films, go back and you know watch House and and see how it fits in with those because uh, it it's, it does. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I uh, I have not gone back to rewatch House since watching these uh, films that uh, that we're going to be talking about today, but it has sort of retroactively enrich that movie and if if it's a movie that is just living in that sort of world of crazy japanese horror movie thing that it's sort of sold as uh the the layers that are actually at play in that movie i think if if you are familiar with obayashi um it would enrich it quite a bit so yes i i would certainly encourage uh that and now for the uh, film on our list, which is closest to House, in that it is, in some respects, a horror movie, uh, The Discarnates, also known as Somewhere Among the Zombies. Take it away, Evan. Uh, yeah, so uh, The Discarnates is, I think, well, I guess I should also say, before we jump right into The Discarnates, that 
we did actually explore quite a few of these uh, Obayashi films before we decided to settle on these three films. So we may, uh, I think, probably mention some of the other films uh, as they uh, come up because we did kind of dive into him more generally. Uh, but uh, so one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about the Discarnates on this show, even though I think that there are maybe some other films that Obayashi made that are perhaps more moving, uh, sort of better films, to be honest. But The Discarnates is where I think what we'll see as the the nostalgic, emotional, sort of youth-centered part of, of Obayashi, which is quite important to him, meets the, the horror element that is present in-house and in other parts of his career. And though I think it's perhaps a little bit weaker than some of the other films, it uh, has a very strange way that it approaches combining those elements. The basic premise of the film is that a, a sort of 40-something screenwriter uh, or television uh, scriptwriter uh, who lives in Tokyo has a series of encounters with both a woman in his sort of sterile, very 80s-looking apartment building in Tokyo and the ghosts or the sort of phantom figures of his parents uh, who had died when he was uh, much younger, uh, I think around 12 years old, uh, in a different section of Tokyo in Asakusa, which is an older uh, still kind of uh, one of the few sections of Tokyo that retains some of an older older flavor of the city. And so the movie alternates between him sort of having these experiences with these phantom parents and then returning home to this woman that he's having an affair with in his apartment building. Uh, but each time he returns home from the visit to his parents, he displays a sort of sickening... Uh, aging that is afflicting him with a sort of horror movie makeup uh, and and whatnot. And I guess I just, the way that Obayashi suggests that this nostalgic affinity that he has for the experiences with the parents, he, in the film, when he goes off to see the parents, uh, it's it's shot in a much warmer color palette. It's very inviting and really touches on a sort of vision of, of Tokyo and Japanese life that is quite alien from the 80s sort of boom economy that the rest of the film takes place in. And he's sucked into this world, and yet simultaneously he seems to be re-entering his life drained of some essential life force by having this nostalgic attachment. And the movie's conflicted relationship with nostalgia, I think is, is quite important for Obayashi. Yeah. So, um, first I, I think that it's, uh, notable that of the three films we're talking about today and indeed of, um, Obayashi's work during this period in general, uh, this is the only film with a protagonist who is not in their, uh, teens or twenties. Uh, this is a middle-aged salary man. Uh, almost seems like uh, a precursor to uh, one of Kiyoshi Kurosawa's characters. Hmm. Uh, and that's something uh, I thought of, not to 
really dwell on another filmmaker too much, but I think that this one would make a, a really interesting pair with uh, the film Retribution. Um, yeah, I can see that. <clears throat> but because he is uh, a 40-year-old man, um, he's um, of that generation who is, you know, grew up um, after the Second World War and you know, is living in uh, this economic boom and you could see uh, some sort of metaphor with a relationship with his parents uh, as being generational in a way. Um, what struck me this time uh, upon watching it was when he first sees his father, um, it almost seems like they're the, the, the very show that they go to, that this vaudeville act, uh, it seems like something out of 1920s Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I wonder if we're supposed to take that uh, along with the incident earlier on the film with the um, train coming down the um, line, even though that's supposed to be long closed, um, as the beginnings of uh, the rift with the supernatural. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the sequence where he walks into the theater and it is sort of this uh, very outdated theatrical performance that's happening uh, is it, it happens somewhat out of context. And it is, I think the, the place where the film sort of eases between those two worlds. Although, like I said, I, I think it's important that the parents both uh, live in Asakusa and that all his encounters with them happen there. Uh, because I do think that, you know, probably for the a Japanese audience, that part of the, uh, the city is associated with uh, that sort of uh, that history in a way that it, and you know, there's a sort of specificity to the Asakusa scenes. You see Sensoji temple and some other things. Uh, whereas his life in his apartment building is quite anonymous and it, Obayashi, he returns a few times to that shot. That's like outside the apartment building where you get no sense of its surroundings and it's just like on a freeway or something. It's like on like a, a major thoroughfare. It just seems like this totally isolated, nothing place. Yeah. Uh, so much of this movie either takes place uh, at night, uh, usually in, in the apartment uh, with his um, uh, girlfriend uh, or at sunset, uh, uh, that that's that sort of hour with his uh, parents. Very little of this movie seems to take place during the day. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the nighttime sequences in the apartment are shot uh, like something more traditionally like a, a horror movie. Uh, and I think the thing that is strangest to me about this movie is that it. I think it, as I sort of had set up, I think it proposes this uh, relationship that the the scriptwriter has with his parents is this sort of draw being drawn back to this like almost literally zombified version of, of 1950s Japan. Um, but that sequence, which the movie I think sort of posits or those sequences rather, uh, which it posits as the thing that is draining him of life and sort of prematurely aging him uh, are the scenes that are shot like, 
they are very warm. They have this sort of home drama feel back at the apartment at night. That's where you actually see him aged. And I guess I was curious from your perspective, Eli, how those two things coalesce at the end of the film. Uh, yeah. Well, and how, and yeah. how the, the, the story of the woman and the parents, uh, find a way. Yeah, to I, 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 I've been wondering about that. Part of me thinks that perhaps we're, um, in the end, not meant to think the parents were causing this effect on him at all. Uh, and it was just, um, the ghost of the, um, woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess we should say the woman who he's having an affair with, it turns out, uh, is a ghost and she had killed herself after, uh, in the early part of the film, he sort of rejected, uh, her advances, uh, at one point. Yeah. So it, it's either that or, um, the woman and the parents were draining him. Certainly though, um, I think I found the latter more interesting, uh, that it was both, but it wasn't anything malicious with the parents, um, because that, that does give it, uh, I think a more bittersweet edge that, um, it's a story of a man making a bargain to give up his own, um, health and well-being to spend time, more time that he never really had with his parents. And, and I find that very, uh, very moving. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's what attracted Obayashi to the source material in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think that does seem to be where Obayashi's heart lies. And I think when I walked away from the movie, I was pretty convinced that it was this sort of self-critique on Obayashi's part of his own nostalgic impulses. And, you know, the fact that the the lead character is like a scriptwriter in his 40s, like I think it's quite easy to, to read him as an Obayashi stand-in. But as I was sort of sitting with it more and thinking about how the the story of the woman who eventually reveals herself as a ghost and reveals her uh, story about killing herself and blood flies everywhere and it, it briefly turns into a, uh, something really more like a horror movie, uh, how in some ways she represents a sort of different Japan, this Japan of the 80s, and that, as you said, maybe it's possible that it's actually her that that is draining the life from him and that sort of this sterile life in this apartment building where they both live is actually the thing that is is slowly killing him well Um, i i think the more interesting reading is that it's both right well and i think the, the other thing well in trying to sort of understand how these two elements uh coalesce at the end of the movie and i'm still not entirely sure they do in a totally uh coherent way for me emotionally but i did sort of think about this as a uh kind of like obayashi's a christmas carol yeah that's interesting this ghost of the past and ghost of the present there's no real ghost of the future uh character there is who who's that his son i mean not actually a ghost but and i was just about to mention because the movie makes this sort of odd shift at the very very end to highlight the relationship that the scriptwriter has with his son, who's mentioned earlier in the film, but who I don't believe we see until you do not, no. the end of the film. And I think it, it sort of, it comes so late that it, it's a little oddly structured, but it reorients the, the film. I think in a lot of ways about him learning to 
live his own sort of life in this moment uh, with this relationship with his son. And that I think, as you say, that both the trial of his parents and of this woman may be the things that help him to do that uh, for him in, in tandem, I guess. Yeah, uh, to the point that uh, that this movie uh, can be looked at as a moralist tale, I, I think that's what it is. Um, it's a tale of a man who, through supernatural means, um, confronts... Um, not confronts. Um, comes to terms with his past, um, you know, rejects the present, and vows to make... Um, himself a good father to provide a better future for his son. Uh, I mean, that that's a very basic um, way of looking at it, but, but I think that there is um, something to that uh, effect. Well, and I think what's why I feel like a stronger need to articulate that with this movie maybe than, than some of the other films or, or that sort of message of the movie or, or what it's doing with that uh, sort of moral element is that it is a sort of bizarrely structured movie. Like it's quite insular. It doesn't really have many characters. I mean, we've pretty much highlighted all the people that exist in this film and his uh, friend. And then that's it. Yeah. And, and the Tokyo that it takes place in is like essentially entirely devoid of, of people. And partly also, as you said, because it takes place mostly at night when he's walking around it on the streets. He's mostly sort of, at night, um, and I think also crucially in the summer. Yes. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up uh, because summer is something that is, I think, extremely important to uh, Obayashi. And, Absolutely. And yeah, the movie does have this, even though it does take place at night, uh, does sort of have a little bit of the like balmy texture of of summer to it. Yeah. More, I think, more so in the scenes uh, with his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, even to an extent uh, outside. Yeah, I love the bit that when he goes to his, whenever he goes to his parents' house, his mom like berates him to take his shirt off because he's like yeah. dressed uh, in his sort of salary man kind of suit, and she's like, "It's so hot, just take your shirt off." And they all sit around and, and she's making ice cream by hand. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, the the summer element is. Imp- I mean, well, and I think that the the English title, the Discarnates, is. Summer with my summer with zombies or summer with the zombies is uh, perhaps a little misleading, but uh, the discardance doesn't really tell you much of anything. But I think that yeah, uh, clearly the the summer element of it is important. And the the movie ends with him uh, actually saying something to the effect of, uh, you know, even though this was sort of this this strange uh, supernatural experience. I believe I spent the summer with them, and there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. I think the most moving scene in the movie uh, is when his parents dissolve, and because that dissolve happens so slowly, um, it, it does cut to um, our lead uh, several times, but even so... Uh, it's it's a it's a gradual process, uh, and I think that that decision, rather than have them talk and then dissolve away more or less suddenly, um, gives uh, gives their fa- farewell. I think more impact. Yeah, that that scene is is really 
uh, quite moving. And well, I think there's a sense that the son is sort of wishing them away a little bit in that scene and that he's sort of, as he's talking through the reasons that he can't come see them anymore, that's as they're slowly dissolving away. Like he's sort of, the more he talks about how he, he needs to sort of make this break from, from them and from his past to live his own life. It's a progressive uh, movement of their dissolution uh, out of the brain. So yeah, quite moving. Well, anything else on uh, the discarnates? Um, yes. I really love the use of uh, the music in this movie, particularly the Puccini op- uh, aria, uh, and the way that it's used in that climax uh, is one of my favorite uses of a, not- of a well-known piece of music um, in, in a while. Yeah, it's distinctive enough that at least for a while, if uh, I hear that uh, particular piece of uh, Puccini, it will be uh, pretty clearly associated with a woman shooting blood all over uh, a man in aging makeup uh, out of her chest. So distinctive, to be sure. Well, okay. Uh, Shall we take a break Uh, and then we can come back and discuss the next film, Bound for the Fields, the Mountains, and the Seacoast. Excellent. Welcome back, and uh, for our second film today, we are going to be talking about uh, Obayashi's Bound for the Fields, the Mountains, and the Seacoast, and uh, I think, well, at least for me, and I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, Eli, but I I presume that uh, this was a pretty major uh, discovery for you uh, watching this recently. Oh, definitely. Uh, I think this is, uh, I have a lot of affection for the, the next one we're going to discuss, but uh, I think that Bound for the Fields is probably of the Obayashi films the most sort of singular achievement and certainly I think the most ambitious of his films uh, that we've seen. It's basically a uh, film about these kids who are living in uh, 1930s Japan uh, in Onomichi, which is an island uh, near Hiroshima which is where Obayashi grew up. I don't know if he grew up there his whole life, but anyways, he spent part of his life there, and uh, quite a few of his films are set in Onomichi, which sort of, so that was sort of as a recurring uh, location and, and theme throughout these films. 
and uh, the film follows these these kids uh, as they basically live out their life, sort of in the ramp up of uh, the Second World War and Japanese fascism. But I think the most remarkable thing about the movie is the style. Uh, I think both of us watched this in uh, the black and white version that Obayashi made. It was originally, yes. I believe, released in a color version. But the film is in 4.3. It, and the black and white, the texture of the black and white is has this sort of blown out look that really tries to, I think, recreate the, the look of film stock in in 1930s Japan, but in a way, like, it's just a little more heightened than that, but it looks grainy, it looks a little blown out, like, it's this sort of dream of what 1930s uh, Japanese cinema looks like, so, I don't know, I, the, the stylistic choice to shoot this in a way that really replicates, um, not just in the, the film stock, but also in sort of the, the shot selections, uh, he sort of tends to move his camera and, and frame things in a way that's quite reminiscent of the 30s is, at least for me, the most immediately striking thing about this. Movie. Absolutely. And um, I, I believe that um, the black and white version was actually uh, long unavailable um, until recently, based on a uh, description I read from um, a relatively recent uh, Obashi retrospective. Um, but I can't, I, I, I did watch a bit of this film in, in the color version and yeah, so it, 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 it's certainly still a good film, but this film is meant to be seen, um, in this black and white format for the reasons you articulated. Um, and because this film is about nostalgia, both, uh, nostalgia for this time period and also i i, I think um as, as you pointed out a nostalgia for like these uh shochiko filmmakers of the 1930s uh obviously ozu and also like shimizu and, and gosho uh if you watch in that color version not only is it just less visually beautiful i i think than this black and white which is some of the um you know, most gorgeous um, filmmaking in, in Japan of the 1980s, um, but you're missing the connection to uh, that very conscious connection to that uh, style of filmmaking. Uh, there are shots in here that if I didn't know better, I would say are from Ozu films. Yeah, there was that one that you sent me. I kind of want to post that uh yeah, with I'll, the episode I'll, or uh, something. I'll make sure that it gets out there. But yeah, um, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it would be virtually indistinguishable from from an Ozu film. I, I think that shot. That shot. So, yeah. You now you talked um, in your intro to this about how this film follows these kids in the lead up to war, uh, the Second World War, but uh, in these kids' lives, they are at war already, uh, with each other, and to an extent also with, uh, adults. Um, and it is, it's certainly, uh, in, in its own way, cute and sometimes, uh, amusing and funny, but the fact that Obayashi goes to great length without explicitly moralizing that these kids are 
being raised to uh, grow up in this military mindset from such a young age, which is probably what he went through, um, is really striking. Yeah, and I, like I guess the the two kids or the two sort of groups of kids like pit themselves against each other and it, the fight sequences that they have, I mean, they sort of say like, let's play a war game. And I think there's always a sense with them that there's no real underlying conflict. They're sort of just playing this game, but they do actually get like pretty violent and are like beating each other up and, and tying themselves to, to posts or whatever. And, uh, the adults seem not concerned in the slightest. In fact, you know, I think there's that sequence where uh, one of the kids, I think it's like a stone thrown against his back and he goes to see uh, the main uh, character's father is a doctor and he goes to see the doctor and the doctor says something uh, like, you know, I'm not concerned that you're fighting, but how dare you as a Japanese man come and, and show me that you've been hit from behind, that you had your back turned in this. Battles. I think that that sense that there's a the sort of culture of war is endemic uh, is is a, a central part of the film. But I think you're right that the movie doesn't in any way come across as some sort of diatribe or, or moralizing. The it's quite funny, and the the characterizations are sort of have a exaggerated quality that I think never allows the movie to feel like it's it's poking fun at, at this era and the kind of ideologies that it represents. So if I, I don't want to spend too much time comparing this to a film I, I don't like, but while watching this and, and a bit after, I, I couldn't help but compare it to uh, Federico Fellini's Amarcord, which mm-hmm. is a film I, I don't care for. Um, and... This succeeds uh, where that doesn't in the fact that, well, it's not completely focused on sex and it doesn't hate women, first of all, um, which is a big problem on Mark Hard. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't show fascism as something that, you know, is encroaching. It's, it shows that as and, and fascism in, in militarism as something that is more or less ingrained, not not inherent, but uh, something that can come to the surface with from within, even from a young age. Uh, but again, without being moralizing or so self serious that. Uh, you lose the entertainment value because this film is very entertaining too. Well, and and I think part of that has to do with the extent to which Obayashi, like we've talked about how the film is about these kids and it, it certainly is primarily, but it, it also is, I think one of the kind of great community films in a way, like it has a sort of, uh, you know, dare I say 40 and kind of sweep to really orienting you to this whole community that lives on this small island. I think you get, you know, quite a sense of the space of the island, you know, who the inhabitants are and and how they sort of interact with each other across uh, sort of age and and socioeconomic spectrums. And that's actually one of the things I think that the, the sort of the war sequences with the kids, uh, I like that little bit where uh, they're describing that they're going to war and they talk about how one 
you know, group of the island goes to this family or this temple and you know something about that family because of, you know, they go to this temple. So naturally we're going to sort of be against them, which I think uh, sort of shows the, is both an example of the sort of natural uh, otherization that happens in, in a fascist culture, but also keys you into some sort of like specifics that are detailed about this community in a way. Certainly. I, I think that um, all the Obayashi films I've seen that deal with um, the countryside and or smaller uh, villages, towns in, in some way have a really a really deeply felt sense of place. Uh, but as you said, uh, it's done, it's done. So it's not something that is separate from the follies of youth, nor the parable about militarism. Those all happen, uh, at the same time, very gracefully. Uh, this film also reminds me, I'm not sure if you're particularly familiar um, of uh, Shigeru Mizuki's work. Uh, he was a mangaka, and uh, he, wrote a, he wrote a number of uh, great books, but uh, I'm really fond of uh, one called Nononba and one called... Um, Actually, let me look at the title. Onward, <laughs> yeah, I certainly don't know. Onward so. Toward Our Noble Deaths. Uh, oh, yeah, actually, dude, I actually have heard of that one. Yeah. Wow. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I bring him up because uh, it's the same sort of, you know, nostalgia for that period, but also um, exposure of the fascistic uh, undertones to... Um, Jackson society that were growing at the time and the brutality and, and I, I almost want to say frivolity, although it's not war isn't something that Obayashi you know, thinks is actually a game, even if these kids do, but absurdity might be a better word. That Well, frivolity, though, is an interesting question I think that I have about this movie because uh, I I do think that the spirit of the movie is sort of ultimately anarchic, though it is exploring this sort of this fascist world. You know, I mean, again, we sort of, the parents are sort of a little bit ridiculous and caricatured. The adults, like the teacher, is the most probably ridiculous character in the movie. He has this like ridiculous fake mustache that. Uh, he wears the. It's a look I'm going for this. Uh, this <laughs> and he has these like super baggy pants, and then he like runs in this extremely cartoonish, like affected manner, and has this high pitched voice. And he's like, there's a sequence where uh, Osho, we haven't talked about yet, who is the yes. um, sister of of one of the characters, and sort of I think embodies this like Setsuku Hara ideal at least sort of at, yeah, I, I uh, think at the that, outset of the movie. Yeah, if uh, there's one character who I, I think is really the focal point of this movie, uh, even if she's not necessarily the focal point in terms of, you know, she doesn't have the most screen time, I, I think the film, if it's about any one person rather than the town, it would be about her. Well, and, and even if it's not about her, like, psychologically, the everything revolves 
the incident of the film yes. all happens around her and she's the the sort of like moral focal point of the movie's outrage uh where i think it, it locates its critique I, I guess i would say most precisely is is with her absolutely the the fact that it goes from this um farcical boys game to this girl is being sold into sexual slavery uh, is you know that that's this film's coming of age is, is that realizing that behind the uh, absurdity of these uh, little war games you know there are actual people's lives at stake well, and, and actually, like it, that's the moment. I mean, you and said, this sounds so. I'm so, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, like you, you said, that's like the moment of the film's sort of awakening, but it's also the moment of of the kids' awakening because oh, yes. the the second sort of, or I guess the third act of the film is them staging this sort of. They they stop playing their war game against each other and sort of turn their energies against the world of these adults who are willing to sell this... What, is she 14 or 15? I mean, she's quite young, uh, this girl, in, in yeah. into, into prostitution. And they enact this this plot to try to save her. Uh, but I think it's important, too, though, in the way that the, the actress who plays her sort of has this Setsukuhara-like look to begin with, and she's shot in the same sort of, like, glowing way that I think Setsukuhara is portrayed not so much in the film she's in but in i think the maybe the sort of like remembered perception of her yes. culturally mm-hmm. and uh she embodies this kind of this role in look but also she sort of bears her her burdens in the film with that kind of little like closed mouth smile that that hara has but mm-hmm. the final gesture that she has in this film is literally like going up in flames. Yeah. And I think there's a way in which the film takes this idea of this horror-like angelic suffering Japanese woman who who bears all this uh this sort of cultural baggage with dignity and grace and burns it to the ground a bit. Absolutely. Uh this film can be seen as not a rebuke of you know the you know great the great films of uh, Ozu from this period and and his contemporaries, but of the idea uh, of of what they represent without actually having seen them. Yeah, I think that's true. Like in a way, it's like kind of a is a weird um, work of film criticism in yeah. a way in, in that way that it because certainly the way that Obayashi films this shows a great deal of affection for the actual films, mm-hmm. but the idea of that we're all which is that we're all one big happy family and family meaning society which is actually not what those films are about but what some might think they're about or at least I think, the idea of propaganda yeah. yeah well i think that the there is a kind of view of ozu that i think is now relatively outdated so i don't think there's a whole lot of people that really still i would assume hold that view of ozu but as the sort of uh the up the person who like upholds these values of sort of patriarchy and, and whatever in, in Japanese society. And um, yeah, yeah, I think this movie sort of uh, attacks that in a way. And there's a way in which too all of the characters, including the children, I think the movie is 
obviously very celebratory of the sort of anarchic impulses of the children, but I don't think it spares them entirely from the sort of critique in relation to the Osho character that they too sort of project something onto her that isn't necessarily true about her, her actual person. Like they perceive her to also be this sort of angelic, pure figure that they have to save. And I think one of the saddest scenes in the movie is when they sort of initiate this rescue, they do sort of manage to pull the, the, these women that are being, these young girls really that are being sold into prostitution away from their pimps for a brief period. But they all, you sort of see a sequence of them all decide to just kind of resign themselves to their fate and go back because they know that they have nowhere to go. And yeah, they can run, try to run away from this Island, but where are they running into just the same society that, that exists elsewhere? Can I go back to uh, a couple formal points? And yeah, by the way, sure. that was very well put. I just don't have anything to add to that. Um, but uh, a couple formal points I wanted to mention are uh, the Irish shots, um, which are sometimes I think meant to be diegetic. Uh, I really love those, and that's another really great call, um, you know, formal callback to an older style. Well, and the uh, the main character is sort of associated with like looking and binoculars. He spends a lot of the movie looking uh, through the binoculars. So I think yes. there's uh, a way in which it, yeah, it is diegetic. It sort of embeds that into. And the other thing I want to talk about ha- is how this film has some of the best close-ups in a film I can think of that just get burned into your brain. Uh, and I don't have uh, anything, I, I think, very incisive to say about that other than that's just a recommendation for people to see this film even more it is because Obayashi has a masterful way with close-ups in this film. Uh, well, I guess I would say like he, I mean, certainly I, I don't think he has the reputation, but he doesn't have much reputation uh, outside of house, but like, I don't get the reputation that he's thought of this as some sort of like actors director or anything, but he is. Oh quite, no. Uh, no I didn't. Quite expert. No, no, I know, but I, I guess I was just—I think he's quite expert at uh, directing these kids. Like these, the performance of these kids is uh, are generally really quite good, and uh, I think he and those, the teacher, the close-ups, you know, I think show his attention to that. Yeah, uh, and I, I think House is obviously that—that that is a comedy too, uh, a horror comedy, but I think it's generally seen positively for its sense of humor. Um, but this is another side of obviously as a, a comedian, and and I think it's it's more human, and because because it's more human, the uh, payoff, um, so to speak, to to the comedy when it turns to tragedy, uh, has an enormous level of pathos for me. Well, and I think you're. I mean, you're right that it becomes this comedy that becomes a tragedy. But then I love that the final gesture of the film uh, is a kind of return back to that comedy. Like they, uh, they actually say, I think the voiceover of the main character sort of looking back on his youth says like, we were burning the remains of our dreams, but this was our last practical joke. And then it, it sort of ends with them uh, pulling one more prank on the, the fascist elders in their community. 
But it ends with a nuclear explosion. And then it does end with the bomb. Also, spoiler um, alert. Um, yeah. Sorry. But yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, I understand when you meet, it does have that comic... And, and that is actually a, a funny sequence um, when it happens like that. But considering what has just happened, and then Obayashi reminds you that this war is, is happening, about to happen... Um, and then has happened and ends with the atomic bomb uh, is, uh, I mean, it's a real gut punch in a way. Well, and I think that's where, where I think Obayashi acknowledges the limits of his nostalgia, perhaps, because I think the movie, until basically the last 20 minutes and there's a, a sequence when, when Osho actually dies and she's in this boat and it goes up uh, in flames. The movie switches to this like really intense Karaskiro, like super high contrast black and white and the, the white flames like overtake the screen and it, it looks something much more low contrast before that. I mean, just... no, I mean, and actually in the color version, uh, I watched that sequence cause I was like, how does this sequence look in color? It actually switches to black and white at that moment in the huh. color version, uh, which is interesting. But, um, in any case, there's sort of this conflagration that happens and the movie, I think shifts a little bit at, at that point to acknowledging the, the limits of that nostalgia. And then Obayashi allows himself this sort of almost fantasy of like what the 1930s cinema could have, the spirit of that cinema could have represented if the country had not truly devolved into the fascism that, that, you know, ultimately overtook it. I think it's this, the final sort of prank is this desire to, wish for a, a version of the 1930s in Japan that, you know, the, the poignancy of the film is knowing that that version obviously can never happen. So to have that final prank and then switch to uh, a shot of the bomb, I think sort of is that, that dual move uh, that Obayashi makes. Uh, you know, a, a few more straight thoughts. There are so few, um, you know, there are so few young men, and I don't mean boys, I mean, you know, young men, in some, because it's clear that they're all, you know, in military training or, you know, in the army already. Um, and something that is, uh, I don't remember if it's, it's, it, that's explicitly said, but it's certainly not made much of a point in the film, uh, but, it, but it is something that you pick up on after at least a little bit that it does feel deserted in that particular way. But there are a lot of elderly people, and... Um, I, I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of that, that it, it really is... There is a huge gulf of age in the film. Yeah. yeah, and it doesn't necessarily put them on the same level as, uh, you know, like that military officer who comes... Um, and, and it's especially a, a very big part of this film in the later half, but uh, it doesn't exactly absolve them because it sort of implies that even if they're not causing this now, that they at some point were a part of it. Uh, the children? 
you mean? No, the um, the elders. Oh, gotcha. Well, yeah, I mean, the elders certainly, but even the, the military officer, and I don't know if it's just a consequence of the casting or, or not, but, I mean, he looks like he's, you know, he's an officer, but he looks like he's 18 or something. I mean, no, he's that quite is, young, too. I think that's the point. Yeah. Um, is that um, in, you know, with conscription, you know, I, I don't think it was 18, but probably in his early 20s, because that's just what happened. And yeah, but I, I think by, so it's not unrealistic, but they didn't have to, Obayashi didn't have to cast a younger man um, in that role. But I think it works because uh, he's not that far off from these kids. And I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, because really like the, so the, the other, I guess, main sort of character that we didn't touch on is Osho's brother who uh, transfers into the school with the kids uh, who are sort of the, the kids that already live in this community. And yeah, I mean, he, he's what got to be like 13 or something. And it, it feels like the, the officer can't be, uh, you know, more than five or six years older yeah. uh, than him. And I guess I also, since I brought that, uh, that character up, I, I guess I wanted to mention that the, uh, we talked about the importance of place in Obayashi, but one thing I thought was really interesting in watching all these films, um, including some of the films we're not talking about, is the importance of uh, transfer students in his movies. Yes. Uh, he actually has a movie that uh, sometimes it goes by uh, transfer students in its mm -hmm. English title. Uh, but I was thinking about why he focuses, I think, so frequently on, on transfer students. Um, I mean, obviously he's making films frequently about young people to begin with, but there's a way in which having a transfer student, uh, in, in his films allows him to simultaneously have the, the spaces that the films are exploring feel like there's something new that's being explored through one character's eyes, but simultaneously allow for that sort of sense of, of nostalgia and this longing for this home, space at the same time that sort of comes with being, I think, uh, new to a place, but being young and being surrounded by people who have lived in that place for a long time. Yeah. And, uh, and it's the same thing with, uh, one of the films that we won't be talking about the deserted city, even though, um, he's not, uh, the main character is not transferring to a school. The fact that he is a young scholar who goes to this place that is unfamiliar to him is a way of, is a way of, um, imitating the audience's unfamiliarity with his place. Right. It's, it's unfamiliar, but there is too that, uh, that way that being young in a new place and being surrounded by, or it makes it, it in some ways I feel like it's a lot easier to, to go to a new place as a, a young person and just immediately ingratiate yourself and feel both outside of the place and within it because you're thrown into like a school that already has this pre-established community or, or in the case of the deserted city, uh, this family unit in this very small, uh, canal city. It might be worth noting that in, you know, to go back to our earlier film, the discarnates, you know, one of his few films that does not focus on a young person. Um, it's about not, you know, transferring to a new place, but rediscovering an old one. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting contrast. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but speaking of young people in new places, <laughs> um, let's move on to bit, our last great transition. transition. Yeah. Well, um, we usually don't have. Uh, speaking a lot of motorbikes. Transitions. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of motorbikes, uh, we'll be islands. back with. Speaking of yeah, islands. That's that is a better one. Um, <laughs> I'll admit. But uh, anyway, vroom vroom. Uh, we'll be back for our third and final <laughs> film, his motorbike, her island, uh, in just a bit. And uh, welcome back for our discussion on the final film we're going to be talking about today, his motorcycle, Her Island, uh, which is, uh, I hesitate to say this, but it might be my favorite of the Obayashi films. I I think, uh, as I sort of said, Bound for the Fields is a, a really sort of epical achievement, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, but his motorcycle, her island, sort of scratches the same itch for me that, uh, like the the sort of Hoshashen romance films do, or you know maybe a little bit uh, the sort of Wong Kar Wai romance films. It moves from from these younger children who are the focus of of some of the other Wayashi films to people in their early twenties which I guess I can identify with a little bit more, perhaps. And it follows uh, this newspaper, or he's like a copy, I don't know, he's like a newspaper delivery person, right? I don't. I guess I don't know how to describe exactly what he does. But it doesn't matter. We don't really see much of what he does anyways. He has a really cool motorcycle. Evan, this he, guy has a job? Are you sure? <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, it also takes place during the summer in which no one seems to be employed. Well, I guess he's going to college, too, right? He's a music student. I don't know. He's a. He's a. Seems, I mean, I think his job is riding his motorbike and looking looking pretty good. In which case, someone should give him a promotion because he's very good at at that job. But uh, the movie basically follows him around uh, on his cool looking motorcycle, being uh, very attractive, and uh, he goes to the inland sea. And uh, on his motorcycle, at the beginning of the film, he decides to just get away from. Uh, Tokyo for a little while and he immediately meets this uh, woman a young woman who he then spends uh, the rest of the film sort of in a uh, romantic relationship with she becomes obsessed with uh, his motorcycle and wants to learn to ride motorcycles as well uh, and so they sort of start to to share this life uh, on the road on the motorcycles together uh, and and I guess it sort of develops from there. But uh, Could, for me, oh, go ahead if you. Have. I mean, no, if you're not telling the intro. Well, I don't really. I was just going to say that I, I like this is a film that really like both times that I've seen it just totally swept me up into the emotional rush uh, that 
the 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 motorcycles and their romance have this sort of like heady wind in your face quality to it and and that's what really appeals to me about this film like getting kind of swept up in that emotional element i agree i i i don't know if i quite prefer it you know to uh, the last one we talked about but it's you know an amazing film in its own right i just want to go back to the very beginning um and just talk about how it opens formally because it i did not expect it to be quite like this um do you know what the term i'm blanking on it um and maybe you have the movie in front of you how it opens um with the screen being um like very closed like a shutter almost yeah, like a little picture box a picture right box, like a little... that's it yeah it's like a screen, like a smaller screen, like eight millimeter film or something, yeah. like projected onto a yeah a thirty five millimeter exactly. You know, and then it goes to the um, like the uh, I think it's like a four by three, but it's still in black and white. And mm-hmm. once he finally gets on his you know motorcycle and he gets the light and he starts going, it switches to color. And I just, I don't know, I guess, and the music kicks in, I just get goosebumps thinking about how beautifully that's mm-hmm. done. Um, and that's one of the key aspects of this film, is how it so gracefully switches between black and white and color, and it's not always for the reasons that the main character indicates in his narration. Um, because I... I I don't want to call him an unreliable narrator because I think that term is maybe a bit overused, but <laughs> um, he he isn't quite um, matching up his descriptions of the past with you know what I, I guess we could uh, take to be the visual memory of, of the past, uh, what we're actually watching uh, with the transitions to black and white in color. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, he says that his dreams were in in monochrome. Uh, I believe that's that's what you're referring to yes. when he's talking about things being in, in black and white. But even in the in the dreams that are in black and white, uh, or or the sequences that are in black and white, they're not literally. I think in in the context of the film's yeah. dreams. Uh, but Obayashi will do this strange thing where he uh, sort of puts a like a, a spotlight of, yeah. of color, just like he'll pick a sort of random part of the frame like around someone's face or maybe even just like the center of the frame where like the motorcycle is and and have a, a sort of splash of color and everything else around it is is black and white so i think in a way you're right like in, almost immediately he says he's he has these memories in black and white but even the the parts that are in black and white are are punctured by because color. the vividness uh and, and affection for you know motorcycling and and romance are so palpable and so strong for him that it puts color into these otherwise mm. monochrome scenes. And you're right. You kind of get just get swept away talking about it even. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess I thought yeah. since you brought up the, the opening with the, the sort of picture boxed look, uh, one other thing we didn't mention when we talked about uh, the other ones, although I don't know if it's there in the discarnates, but a lot of his films uh, sort of a small touch that I really love have this opening, which sort of has like a, a silent film four uh, three, the sort of like actual, you know, f- drawn on frame yeah. that you would see on a silent film. And uh, they open with a, yeah, a card, a title card that just says a movie. 
Uh, and there's something, this one opens with that. And I know that, uh, Bound for the Fields does. And that is, I don't know, there's something about that that just immediately endeared me to, to these films and to Obayashi. There's something so humble in a way about that to just say like, yeah, you're, you're sitting down for a movie. Like he's not making any claims to, to anything other than just trying to make the, the most, uh, I don't know, movie movie experience. I don't know how to describe it, but there, there's something humble about it that I, that I appreciate. Yes. So uh, jumping ahead a bit, although we can certainly go back to um, earlier scenes, um, the scene where he goes to the island for the first time, um, well, not, not even when he first goes to the island, but when he's on the ferry to go to the island. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are these uh, great, I, I think they're almost like actual cuts um, of him on, on the ferry, uh, and it it's in color until you get to this uh, perspective shot of the uh, sea line in black and white. It switches then back to him in color, and then back when, when, he, when he's closer to it, uh, and you see the whole island back to color. Um, and Obayashi certainly didn't have to do that um, to to communicate what he wanted to do and, and to make it even effective. But um, most directors wouldn't think to do it like that. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's what makes him, I don't know, really special for me, but not in the way that most people think he is. Um, because this these transitions don't happen... Willy-nilly. I'm not saying I can explain every time that it happened to this film, and I think that is part of the point that that it that it does happen just emotionally to an extent. But the the fact that these transitions from black and from monochrome to color and, and vice versa happen because of emotion and memory um, really gives them a just a formal justification for being there. Besides, I just think it would look cool. Uh, yeah, I think you're totally right. There's nothing that's schematic about the changes. Like, it's not like he says every time that we're in this place, it's going to look like this or this kind of every experience Thursday. is happening. <laughs> right. Uh, that, you know, I think you might see with with a filmmaker who uh, I think is more schematic. It, it is more just emotional. Like, they, they all feel right, but uh, those changes from color to black and white. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure that there's any other explanation than, than Obayashi is just attunement to the emotional material, as you suggest. And there's something sort of musical about it. Like, I think well, the movie yeah, is Well, I actually wanted to bring up music. Gorgeous music, yeah. yeah. Um, most of those films, actually, that I've seen have uh, really memorable music. And um, now, Sometimes he writes it himself, too. Yes, and I believe this was actually the case for this one, that he at least covered some of it. Um, but a, a lot of what you hear in, in the score is reminiscent of the songs that he composes. Um, and then it goes back so that to do the reverse later on where they hear something on the radio that sounds like something in the score. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Yeah, it has a kind of like Les Motis uh, throughout. Well, and then there's also just the beautiful use of Debussy in the, in the movie too. Uh, this sort of threaded. Well, actually, you know, bringing up music, I, I know you compared it to Ho, and I totally understand that, and and I agree. I, 
It also reminds me of Demi. You know, I have not seen enough to... Uh... Well, maybe we'll have to do a Jacques Demi episode some of these, one of these days <laughs> then, so I can make you. Uh... Mm. But, uh, well, and I guess I also just wanted to return to that sequence that you highlighted of him arriving at the island sort of the second time after he's decided that he's going to pursue a relationship with this woman after their first meeting. Uh, there's a, a great line that he says in the voiceover that I think is, again, we, we talked about how important place is to Obayashi, and I think this, again, just shows the way in which the films and the emotions and in, in the case of, of Bound for the Fields, the, the political elements, you know, in the film, and I think in this case, the romance are so wrapped up in the place. Uh, he says that he uh, didn't yet long for her. He said, I didn't yet long for her. What I longed for was that island. And I don't know, I find that sentiment so beautiful in a way that he, this character himself is so, ties her so profoundly to the place in which he met her and their relationship to that place uh, as an essential element of their romantic relationship is something that I find really beautiful. And I think it, it makes it clear why in some ways, why he ends up rejecting the sort of girlfriend that he has at the beginning of the film in Tokyo. Who I think well, it's, it's also because, of, yeah, it's not just that, he loves her and loves the island and associates them together. It's the reverse is true that she loves the motorbike and so that she loves him because they mm-hmm. are linked. Um, and I mean, this, this film in a way could be called, he is the motorbike. He is the, she is the island. She is the, <laughs> right. It, it's, I think a, a clumsier title, but, um, <laughs> in, in, but it is in a way maybe more representative. Mm-hmm. Because it's not so much possessive, other than in the, in a literal sense, uh, as much as the these characters are linked um, to the motorbike and the island, respectively. And by by him visiting the island, and by her becoming interested in being a motorcyclist and and, and learning how to do that, that is how the romance develops. And then it's. Just, uh, it's a really delicate touch that, again, could be schematic in another person's hands. It, it, it in a way, it kind of reminds me of the Romer the Romer film. Is it my girlfriend's boyfriend or my boyfriend's girlfriend? I can never remember, but that one. Uh, uh, yes, with, with that the, one. Um, you know, with the blue and the uh, the color green. coding. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Not that there's a direct parallel to that. But they are similar in that it could be schematic in a less skilled director's hands. Mm-hmm. Well, and this one has such a flowing quality to it. I think that's also partly why I connected it to Ho. Yes. Um, the the camera movement in this film is is much more vigorous than it is in Ho, but it does have a somewhat similar drifting quality. It never really seems to be still. Um, you know, especially if you compare it to, to Bound for the Fields, where he really is largely deploying rigid uh, camera setups and sort of cutting between these setups. Here, the camera just is constantly on the move uh, and and pushing in and out and kind of crawling through these spaces. And well, I think the narrative aimlessness, I, I think, also relates to Tony's mm-hmm. view of Inho. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily directly, but I can see the parallels. 
Right, right. Uh, yeah, because really, it, it there isn't much uh, conflict in the film. In fact, that's actually one thing I really like about the film is that it sets up these conflicts, which then are resolved very fluidly and and sort of offhandedly. But you still get the really fun motorcycle on. racing racing scene that is so fun. Well, uh, but that's a perfect example, right? Because you have uh, so the the main character breaks up with his girlfriend in Tokyo, and her the girlfriend's brother is also a motorcyclist, and he sort of challenges uh, the main character to a motorcycle duel, and you get this sort of like great pastiche of like the wild one fifties kind of motorcycle iconography of these these two motor motorcyclists dueling. And they have this duel, which looks quite dangerous, like they could very certainly kill themselves doing this. Mm-hmm. But then within a few scenes, it's like, eh, whatever, forget yeah. about it. But you like, still get the you know pure pleasure of watching that scene. And especially oh, totally, re-watching but... it when you know that there's no real tension behind it. It's just um, Obayashi having a lot of fun. Well, it sets up the conflict and then it explores the conflict, but then it immediately the conflict immediately dissipates. Like, it doesn't exactly. have any lingering effect on these people and their lives, which is also something that because why is would so it? true. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's so true about, I think that this film was a, a great youth film is connected to that in a way, because I think that's like what, what being young is like in a lot of ways. Like you set up these conflicts and you sort of flirt with danger, but then it just kind of deflates and you just I mean, kind of keep know, going on. I spend, I spend my youth on Twitter and watching movies. So <laughs> I would not know, but I, I take it. I take your word. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's something, uh, there's something to the way that even though you have these interpersonal conflicts and, and whatever, that you just sort of keep going with your same, this group of friends that meet in this very sort of like Hoxian bar that they hang out in and they just sort of, roll along with their little conflicts and yeah well um and life goes on in addition to um like that that great scene not having any real long-term uh bearing because it doesn't need to um Obayashi is also able to show the beauty and and a real love for that island without making you know the more urban life scene terrible you know, he doesn't have to uh, lower one to raise the other because the the scenes of the city when, or not even the city, but like in the highways when he's riding his motorbike, those are beautiful in their own way too. Mm-hmm. And they're certainly having fun there. Yeah, totally. Well, the, the spaces in the city, like the bar and his apartment that we return to, like are quite warm and inviting and do have that sense of community there. Yes, and I and I feel like a lesser director would have made it um, about how the city is draining his life, and he needs to get back to uh, the island. I mean, you could still have a great film like that, um, right. maybe like The Quiet Man, actually, but or it, maybe like The Discarnates, kind of in a way, like that. You yeah, know, but there's the no, that... there's no, I guess, island comparison. I mean, you could say that the um, old neighborhood is, but I don't think it's quite the same thing. Well, there's a kind of pastoralism, I think, to the way he treats yeah. the the old neighborhood. I, I guess I think that dichotomy is a little is a little more pronounced. In, yeah. uh, in like the and maybe yeah, and maybe the reason one of the reasons I prefer this, although I very do much like the discarnates, mm-hmm. is because uh, you don't have that one or the other. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and the way that the – you see him a little bit on the highways, but it does feel like the space of the city you know, flows so easily into the space of the island. Uh, just in the way that the the movie moves so fluidly between those two uh, locales, I think. Yes. Yeah, and I really like that sequence on the island. Uh, well, it occurs twice. The the Oban yes uh, festival dance sequence. Can, another, can we? Can uh, we? Um, would you care to fight some background on that? I don't know that I really. Canada, oh, not it's just the, not the any, Japanese festival for for the ancestors for ancestors. Well, yeah, I didn't mean really any more background than that. I just wanted to <laughs> bring up that it was for the ancestors because I I do think that the fact that thanks for bringing it up, I, I almost forgot to bring it up uh, that he comes to the island during that specific time, you know, is is significant because um, he is going to this place when the island. When I say the island, I mean that metonymically. The, the people of the island are celebrating, um, you know, their ancestors and, and in a way their heritage, and that he mm-hmm. is being welcomed there um, in 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 that way is is I think really sweet and really touching. Yeah, they're they're totally warm and inviting him, and I love that that part where he sort of asks like, "Oh, you, you dance at your Oban festival," and. And I think it's it's her that replies back and says, "Yes, we we dance for the people who were born, lived, and died on this island, and like they deserve our our sort of uh, our dancing, and and we want to sort of celebrate them in this way." Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's something about that that just sort of gets right at, cuts right to the heart of the the spirit of of this film. I think. Well, speaking of death, here's something <laughs> funny. The first time I saw this film. I didn't realize that there was like another couple of minutes left. <laughs> so I like thought after, she just died. Do you, you like turn it off before? No, I, I just, I don't know what happened. Maybe I was just tired and, and didn't finish the last couple of minutes the first time, but I thought that's how it ended. Uh, but no, as it turns out, that was just, he had a bad fantasy and she's alive and well. And as you said, the film avoids those, um, I guess unnecessary, um, you know that that unnecessarily melodramatic end because I think um, I obviously liked the film my first time. That made it even better when I saw it the second time because <laughs> there was no reason to do that and make it the way it was. Well, and I guess yeah, it's worth saying that uh, the the last sort of movement of the film, she becomes really obsessed with the motorcycle and and wants to learn to ride herself and ride the I can't remember what it is the like. 300 cc motorcycle whatever like the faster bigger engine one and uh he is is sort of concerned about her uh, ability to do that and there's a sequence where she's driving one of the motorcycles and she's sort of off in the hills and you can see her in the distance and i believe it's the the boyfriend or sorry the uh the brother of the his prior girlfriend who says something like you you have to get her off the motorcycle she's like one of these prodigies who will it'll kill her if she if she keeps doing this and the movie sort of sets up this prophecy of her death in a way that you really expect it to fulfill and yeah i just love that he he worries about her riding like this and and wants to contain her and the movie sets it up like it it's going to sort of vindicate that and then it says like no she she has just as much 
the movie validates her desire to sort of live this life on, on the motorcycle and everything that means just as much as it does his. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess going to uh, closing thoughts, um, you know, I, I mentioned in passing about how, you know, attractive the actor is. And obviously that is part of me talking about this is just me projecting, but I do want to point out that Obayashi does film him very sensuously in some ch- sensuously in some scenes well tongue twister and um I, it does I, help that he is naked very frequently yes and then that's another positive about this movie um but i i do mean that i think that it is a legitimate legitimate thing that this film has going for it that um you know obayashi isn't um you know, just showing this beautiful woman in the uh, male gaze. He's also showing how there's this beautiful young man um, who is also very attractive. And Obayashi spends quite a bit of time showing us that. If anything, more time, I think. Oh, much more time. Yeah. And I'm very thankful. Um, (laughs) But um, I'm... I really appreciate that he took the effort to show him, you know, as a carefree, um, very sensual, naked man. That was mm-hmm. really nice. Thank, well, and you know, thank I, you, I guess I appreciate it. <laughs> we already mentioned the the importance of summer in these films, and I guess I would just say that, you know, I think all that that you just said though is kind of connected to the the summery qualities, and maybe I'm just really craving to get out of the gray in Seattle and it's on my mind clearly, but uh, there is a way that, that, that sensuality that he's, and he's, that he's constantly like taking clothes off that there's this sort of like warm summer. And then nudity on the bike to the film. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. That's a, yeah, that's, uh, that kind of comes out of nowhere, but uh, yeah, but I mean, I think that the, the movie ends with him, uh, again, in his sort of like narrating this account of his of his life, and I guess it's also worth noting the movie takes place over two consecutive summers, basically. Um, so it doesn't really spend any time in in the other seasons in any uh, great length. And that the film ends with him saying in that voiceover that uh, like summers is where my heart is, which I think is. Uh, like that's something that I, I really take from all these Obayashi films. You know, we had mentioned the deserted city already. That's another film that is, is really infused with summer and, and summer light and the way that that, that sort of light looks, uh, in this canal town at the height of summer. And, uh, I don't know, maybe it's even just the, the, the gray, but I appreciate it. Yeah, Even the rain in these movies, uh, has, um, a bright summery aspect in its own way. Mm-hmm. I mean, not in the discarnates, but in the others. Well, yeah, the rain in the discarnates is uh, very different, very dark. But but the other scenes in that film are are quite sun kissed uh, and summery yes. looking uh, when he's with the parents. But all right, so um, closing thoughts on Obayashi in the eighties. Um, I'll, I'll go first if you don't mind. Sure, go for um, it. So the the film that uh, we mentioned a couple times, um, but we didn't really talk about it in length, was uh, The Deserted City. Um, if, for some reason, um, we had made this a four-film podcast, and I don't think we'll ever be doing that, so don't <laughs> worry, listeners, um, that 
that I think would have been it because it is. Uh, I actually prefer it to the Discarnates, um, but um, I do too. But um, for a couple of reasons, um, I'm glad I actually went with the Discarnates. But anyway, um, Deserted City is also a, a great film um, a bit about a um, about a town that was very uh, near and dear to Obayashi's heart with these beautiful canals and and I I can't recommend that film highly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and also from the 80s, School of the Crosshairs is fun, but it's nothing great. But it's definitely fun. Check it out. It it's, is quite it's, fun. It's a less special version of Hauzu. And then if you want to see a really bad film, watch The no. Drifting Classroom. No, <laughs> it no. Is I thought we were going to mention it. It is so bad. Evan did not believe me about how bad <laughs> that movie was. I, and then he probably figured it was I, me just hating everything. I, I, that um, was that is, was an accurate assumption. Would you like would you like to continue? No. <laughs> All right. It's awful. It's I was I have not been that taken aback uh by a filmmaker who I uh, clearly adore uh by some uh, you know so I can't even talk about it. Their work uh Having such a huge drop in quality, it was, it was baffling. Well, you, Don't, you by saw, any means. But you saw also a has, couple of his 80s movies that I didn't. Um, would you like to like touch on them? Well, or? I'd certainly rather talk about those than uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, what, the Drifting Classroom, whatever. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, Transfer Student uh, is really fantastic. That's his sort of uh, body swap comedy, which... I mean, I never would have thought that a like body swap comedy could be uh, sort of approaching like deeply felt emotional masterpiece level, but uh, Obayashi gets it there, and I think that one gets at a lot of his uh, his sort of concerns about again. We'd mentioned like transfer students as is, is in the title, and it's also set in Onomichi, uh, which is uh, where he shot uh, Bound for the Fields and part of. Uh, his motorcycle, her island. Um, so that one is, I think, uh, really special uh, as well. Yeah, and I guess I would just say that my other sort of general thought about Obayashi is we we've talked a lot about the importance of place in these films. But as I was watching these, you know, it didn't really occur to me the extent to which so many of the Japanese films that I really love are really Tokyo centric, and it seems like it's a film culture that, you know, for the most part, with some obviously notable exceptions, is really, really focused uh, and, and centered in Tokyo. And there's, I think I had a, an extra appreciation for Obayashi upon realizing the extent to which he really does go to these places and, and take them seriously and make them these really breathable spaces that you, you feel like you can practically walk around in. I mean, I feel like watching the deserted city that it was like a, almost like a diorama that I could live in of this, this canal town. And, uh, I don't know. There's just not a lot of other Japanese filmmakers. I think that are have, that willing have you to seen, go out. Um, Kinoshita's carbon comes home. I haven't. And actually that's uh that is, there's a brief, uh, sequence that's from that movie in the discarnates, isn't there? Yes. I was actually going to bring that up. Uh, but I forgot we were talking about the Discarnates, and now thanks for reminding me. But anyway, uh, yes, I love that that he referenced that because that is, I think, one of the um, archetypical 
great um, Japanese countryside movies. And so you need to see that, my friend. I do need to see that. And before, before you know, we sign off for the, today, I want to tell our listeners about my favorite Obayashi movie. It's a commercial starring Mr. Charles Bronson <laughs> for a man's cologne, and it's called Mandom. And it was directed by Obayashi early on in his career. Mandom? Mandom. Look it up. I, I think Bronson, I may have seen this before, but I didn't realize it. I sent this to you like three times. Oh, I don't know if I watched it. But I'm pretty sure I've seen it before, or at least, like, I, I think I know the... I think I know what it is. Hey, I'm Charles Bronson. Is, is the cologne is called Mandom? Yes, that's what it's called. Because <laughs> there's a song in the background, and it is like, in the land of Mandom. Yeah, it's... it's And Albayashi directed it. Yeah, he dra- well, that's how he got his career started, right? He, he directed a ton of commercials and stuff, yeah. Anyway, on um, that note... Yeah, um, Mandom. Thanks, thanks for listening, um, and oh yeah, gosh, he's well, good. Yeah, he's a good. Uh, he's really a good hope egg. Everyone check some of these. Good out. egg. Uh, okay. Uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, see you later, Eli. Bye.